Bible doctrines, and we are right in the middle of the study of the doctrine of man, or anthropology. And uh, we're going to finish that up, and we're going to move into the doctrine of sin this morning. Um, so, before we do that, um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for its truth, for its just timeliness for our lives, for the way it applies to our situations, and, and even today we're going to see how even this simple basic doctrine of the doctrine of man really speaks to um, where we are as a society, what's going on in our world, and, and it helps us to understand how we relate to the world around us, how we, how we function in it, and um, I pray that you would use your word to, to open our eyes to see truth this morning, not just see it, but to embrace it, to to be challenged by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we left off with, with talking about those five words that, that are there on your note sheet, the body, soul, spirit, heart, conscience, and, and we looked at the nature of man. And, and basically what we came out with is um, there's one view that would be heretical, and that would be to see man as a, as a monism, as one element. Um, the, the, we could probably agree to disagree whether it's body, soul, and spirit, or body and soul. I told you where I land on that. I believe that, that the Bible is pretty clear that it's body and soul, and that the words soul and spirit are used interchangeable most times in the Scripture. Um, but at the very least, what we came out with was, is man is a very complex being. And we shouldn't be surprised by that being made in the image of God. Um, there's, there's this view, and, and, and last week Paul said, what are we talking about? Angels on the head of the pen. But there's talking about the origin of the soul. There's three views of the origin of the soul. And there is a view that, that I want you to be cautious of. And that is, is that God created a fixed number of souls at the original creation, and that these souls that, that he created are out there just kind of floating around until he matches them up with a body. Um, that doesn't fly with Scripture at all. That doesn't fly with Scripture at all. Um, I would tend to believe that there's one or two other, two other views that you can say that, that God does, and, and either one, I think, is fair in light of Scripture, one that God creates a soul between conception and birth, or two, that those souls are transmitted just like bodies are transmitted whenever in the natural portion of reproduction. Um, natural procreation, um, the, the souls are transmitted from parents. I don't know, I'm not going to split hairs on that, but I do want to tell you that there is a very wrong view, is that God has created a fixed number of souls and they're out there floating around. Um, you can get some really bad theology from that. Um, you can get some really bad, bad teaching from that. But I want to move on to gender this morning. And gender is important, especially in the light of the, of the world that we live in today. And I want us to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1. And as we talk about gender, one of the things that, that I want to just stress with us this morning is, is this, and we're going to see it in several things when we talk about race in a few minutes, we're going to see this. One of the things that's going on in the world today, one of the things that I'm observing, and it's not just new in our generation, but it's becoming much more pronounced is, 
is that even in the local church, in what we would consider to be good Bible preaching churches, we don't start at the right source document. Let me be clear. We don't start with God's word and work from there. In Romans chapter 15, he tells us that, that the Bible pertains to everything for life and godliness. Now, either God really means that to be true or not. Do you believe that to be true? That, that in his word, it gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. If we really believe that, then, then we have to let the word speak to a lot of things. And what we are doing, and, and it's, so, it's so insidious to me, because we use a good word, and we, and we totally ruin the word, and the word is science. I don't know about you, but between the COVID stuff and everything else, people saying, trust the science, I'm just, I'm tired of science. But we, we've taken the word science, and we've made it into a bad word. Science is, is, is not a bad thing in and of itself, but when we take man's interpretation of facts and what he observes, and we say that that is science, and that because we can observe this, because we see this, that, that it has to be true and it has to be this way, um, that's what we're seeing with the whole transgender movement, that's what we're seeing with, with, with homosexuality, all these things. I'm observing this, it's got to be true. Science backs this up, okay? So much so that now in, 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 our, in our president's current administration, his number two person at the Department of Health is a transgender. Are you aware of that? The transgender. And, and, and she has been, she, he, I, I, yeah, he, I believe he's a he originally. He has been tasked with the idea of protecting this country's mental health. Yeah, that should, that should not just make us laugh, it should make us weep. It should make us weep. I wanted you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. This is, this is a statement of creation. This is, this is Moses recording under inspiration of the Holy Spirit what God does on day six. How does he create humans? Tell me, from Genesis 1.27, how does he make them? Male and female. And it's very clear that created male and female, they're created both in God's image. Right? Do you see it there? Some of you that were at the marriage thing Tuesday night, this is a little bit of review. That's okay. I don't apologize for it. Um, but, but both male and female created in God's image. Okay? Sexuality is objective. It's not subjective. Is that a true statement? But what we've taken in society today is we've made sexuality a subjective thing. I'll give you an illustration just in my own lifetime of how things have changed. I don't know the medical term. Dr. Trudy probably knows the medical term. But when I was a young man, I was, I was 14, maybe 13 years old. We had a family in our church who were close friends with our family. They had a, a baby who was born. And that baby was born, and it wasn't readily identifiable what that baby was. The sexual organs weren't. What's the term for that? I forget what it is. What is it? 
I, can't, I, I don't remember. But anyway, that family wrestled and wrestled and prayed over that. And, and, and they consulted with the pastor of our church that we had prayer meetings. The, the, the leaders of our church, I didn't know this at the time, who were praying for this family because they wrestled with this because they understood the sanctity. And um, if that baby's born today, what happens with that baby? So, yeah, and, and we're just going to nurture that thing. And whichever way that baby goes is what that baby is, right? And, and things have really changed. Things have really changed. Sexuality is objective. It's not subjective. And that applies then as you move forward to marriage. Does the world get to define what marriage is or does God? Let me ask you a more basic question. Who designed, who created, who came up with the idea of marriage? It's not a man-made institution? No. Because if you follow the order of creation, you come to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is, if you will, an expanded view of, of Genesis um, 1 and uh, of day 6 of creation. And, and it's God who establishes marriage. He defines it, he sanctions it, and, and he, he gets to decide what marriage is. We live in a society, we live in a society that believes that society gets to determine that. We're not the first society that, that by the way, and, and I think it's wrong for us as Christians to think that this hasn't been going on. If you do any reading about early Roman and Greek society, it was rampant. Homosexuality was rampant. Okay? Actually, if you do a study of world civilizations, you will find that, that the beginning of the end for every great world civilization is the introduction of homosexuality, which should tell you what's about to happen to our society. Yeah. Yeah. It was, the, it was the end for Roman society. It was the end for Greek society. And so, homosexuality is not sanctioned by God, yet, yet, it's being taught as if it's just normal. It's fine. Bible-believing, supposed Bible-believing churches are getting up and preaching like this is perfectly fine, and they're using no scriptural justification for it. The only way they can justify it is by rewriting the New Testament the same way they do with, with, with roles of men and women and, and, and other things in the Scriptures. They just rewrite the Scriptures. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One of the reasons why Paul is, such, is so under attack and the writings of Paul are under attack is because Paul had a lot to write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about issues that are hot-button issues today. And so if we can determine that Paul was, was a bad theologian, then we can rewrite a lot of the things that he says. Well, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? God isn't just picking on homosexuals here. He's giving big, big, if you will, headings of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But would you agree that all of those things that are named there are sinful practices? Are they sinful practices? 
So what is God saying about homosexuality? It's sin. It's a sinful practice. It's not sanctioned by God. And in fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, this, this section on marriage in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her, the woman, as the weaker vessel, so since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter there would say that marriage is one of those things that would be headed under the title of grace of life. Now, I know that several of you in your marriages probably don't feel like you're experiencing the grace of life. That's why you should be coming to the marriage intensive if you're not. But, but God sees marriage as grace, as the grace of life. Okay? So, this idea of gender, the world does not get to define gender and gender roles and, and what genders are. As you move through the personhood of man, does the world get to define when a person becomes a person? Hmm? Does God define when a person becomes a person? Let's look at a couple of verses. Some of you look up Job chapter 3 and verse 3. Some of you look up Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. And then some of you look up Exodus 21, verses 20 through, 22 through 25. Job 3, 3, Jeremiah 1, 5, and Exodus 21, 22 through 25. I think from these, from these verses of Scripture, we'll be able to, to put together um, God's, under, God's teaching and our understanding of, of when life actually, and when a person becomes a person, when life happens. Job chapter 3, verse 3. Somebody have it? Nobody ever takes the first one. Hmm? Let the day perish that I was born, but then he goes even further back. And what's he say? A man is conceived. When, when does God see life beginning? Conception. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I appointed you a prophet. He's talking to Jeremiah and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God is talking to Jeremiah as if he's a person even before he's formed in the womb. He sees Jeremiah as a person. Okay? All right? Exodus 21, 22 through 25. This is an interesting one. So we got Exodus 21. Paul. Okay, under God's law in the Old Testament, how, did, how was that fetus, that massive tissue in the womb, viewed as a life? Interestingly enough, even in our own court system, even in our own court system, 
you, you, you injure a pregnant woman and you, you maybe take her life and the life of the baby, many times you're charged for how many homicides? Two. Yet if a doctor goes in and forcibly removes that baby and takes its life, does he get charged for a homicide? No. Okay? So, so from Scripture, from Scripture, not from science, from Scripture, when, when, when does a person become a person? At conception, and really in Jeremiah's case, God says, I, I knew you before I formed you. I knew you, your person. I knew you. Okay? So let's talk about death. According to James chapter 2, in fact, somebody, somebody look up James chapter 2 for me in verse 26, and somebody look up 1 Samuel chapter 2 in verse 6 for me. Okay? Death would, death would be, we would, we, would, we would categorize death from a biblical understanding of the separation of the body and the soul. Okay? One part doesn't go on, one part does. What's the part that doesn't go on? Body doesn't go on. Do, do souls ever die? Souls never die. Bodies do. James chapter 2, verse 26. James is using the idea of faith and works, but he says, is the body apart from the soul is dead. The body's dead, okay? So, so he's using something that, that, was, uh, that they understood in their time to illustrate the idea of faith and works. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. Who kills? The Lord kills. Now, we've got to stop and think about that for a second. He, he clearly says the Lord kills and brings down to Sheol. Ultimately, who holds life in his hands? But if I take your life, Paul, then I, do I, am I ultimately responsible? Yes. But who appoints the number of days for a man? Hmm? Can you shorten or lengthen those days? I'll be honest with you. I'll just tell you personally, one of my biggest struggles over this past year and the way that people have responded, and I'll just speak very personally of my own parents in such fear of, of, of a virus, and I'm like, you're not going to lengthen your days or shorten your days by being afraid. Not saying you don't use common sense, don't, don't hear me wrong, but, but really, ultimately, if you're the child of God, can you need to rest in the fact that God holds your, your days in his hand. And that should be a comfort. So what happens to, biblically, what happens to the soul when it goes on? What, what is the destiny of, a, of the person? All of us will face an afterlife, will we not? There's some common misteachings about this. For instance, there's one misteaching about destiny that says there's no afterlife at all, you, which is why you get all you can in this life, live it up, because there's, no, there's nothing coming afterwards. Another common misview is, is that it's only for the soul. Is only the soul going to go through to eternity? No. 
Another one is, is that non-believers will be annihilated. That God's just going to deal with, that eternity is only for believers. Does that fly in the face of Revelation 20? And then there's this view of reincarnation. Um, that you get to come back and get to do it over right. And if you were bad in this life, you come back with, in a lower form. <laughs> exactly. Who wants to do this again? So I want to move to, I want to, move to one that, that, that honestly I think maybe we, hopefully we're going to get through this, but maybe not. Let's go to the sociological implications of the doctrine of man. Why is this so important? And I've given three kind of subtitles under this, and who knows if we get beyond the first one here. Let's talk about ethnicity. What does the Bible say about ethnicity? The Bible says there's one race, correct? Okay. Okay. So, one race, many ethnicities, right? Where did the ethnicities come in? Where? When did the ethnicities come in? No. When did the ethnicities come in? Noah's sons. Noah's sons. You can trace the ethnicities to Noah's three sons. Now, were they further spread out at the Tower of Babel? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because God then changes language and everything else. But the three ethnicities go back to Noah, okay? Noah's the one guy who's left, right? He's got three kids, okay? So, so from, from Noah and his three sons, think about all the different kinds of ethnicities that there are in the world today, right? But if you take, if you take cells, if you want to do the science of this, if you take cells from all these different ethnicities, are you going to find that DNA is pretty compatible all across the board? Why? Because we're one race. Because we're one race. Then why do we have so many racial problems? <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, what do we do? We want us to be better than others, correct? Preach. Preach. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's look at a couple of verses of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about something here. But let's look at what the Scripture says about this. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The book of Galatians deals with the struggle of Gentile believers being 
being under the influence of Jewish, Jewish believers who were trying to turn them into little Jew Christians, basically. And, and that's what they were trying to do. And, and Paul, when he gets wind of this, he fires off a letter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and, and he, he is not nice in this letter. He, he, is, he takes a very fatherly, stern tone with, with the Galatian churches. And so in, Genesis, or in Galatians chapter 3, he, he, he starts to unpack this idea of, of, of what's going on in the church because you've got Jewish believers who think that they're a little better Christians than the, than the non-Jewish believers. And so then you have the non-Jewish believers who are going to try to be Jewish so they can match up. And then you've got, the, you've got some others that are just like totally confused here. So verse 25 he says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. He's talking about the law. The law is our guardian. The law was, the law was what pointed out our wrongdoing. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Is he doing away with genders there? What is he doing away with here? This idea that if you're one or the other, you're better. Okay? So keep that in mind. And let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 9. He's in this section of Scripture now where he's given a lot of theology in verses, or chapters 1 and 2 of this book, and now he's applying this theology in chapters 3 and 4. How, this, how, how the truth that, that Jesus is everything. That's what the whole point of Colossians is. So verse 9 of chapter 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here... Here, okay, he's talking about those who put on the new self. He's talking about believers. He says, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, okay? What is the, what is the church to look like when it comes to division? And, and whether it's over ethnicity, whether it's over, you know, um, economic, you know, background or whatever, what is the church to look like? It's supposed to look like Jesus, right? Isn't that what he says? He says, Christ is what? His all and in all. Okay? Just, just, and I'm not trying to be... Can you see Christ in an Asian person? Can you see Christ in an African? Can you see Christ in, in, in a Canadian? Can you see Christ in an American? kind of rare, but you can. Can you see Christ in a European? Yes. Can you see Christ in a poor person? Can you see Christ in an uber-rich person? Yeah. Can you see Christ in a woman? Can you see Christ in a man? Okay. Keep those two thoughts now and go to Revelation chapter 5 and get a view of what it's going to be like in the future. In Revelation chapter 5. 
This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is, this is one of my very favorites right here. Revelation chapter 5, there's this scene of the throne room of heaven in verse 9. We don't have time to unpack the whole chapter. In verse 9, he says, they sang a new song. Okay, it's all these people who are all around the throne of God. Get, get Picture, if you will, the, the biggest room you can imagine in your mind. There's a throne in the middle of the room. You can barely hardly even stand to look at the throne. It's surrounded by this emerald green rainbow that, that's coming out of this throne. And, and, and you, can't even, you can't even handle what you're seeing there. Yet you're facing it and you are singing. You are singing with the, with the largest choir ever assembled, and here's what you're singing in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, and you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's it going to look like one day, people? What's it going to look like? And we're not going to, I, I, when I see this, I don't see this as like, Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black. The reds are over here, the yellows are over here, the blacks and the whites are over here. You know what I see? We're just all there. Because what are we focused on? Are we focused on the color of our skin here? We're, we're singing to the lamb who is standing right next to the throne, the one who's worthy. And yet, race has become a huge problem in the church. You may not be aware of it, but the American church is about to crumble under the weight of racism. The largest Protestant denomination in our country is about to be totally blasted in pieces over race. Are you aware of what's happening with the Southern Baptist? It's bad. It's bad. And the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake here. This summer, they're going to meet together, and, and I, I anticipate, I anticipate like it's going to be like Armageddon there. It's going to be bad. They're, not, they're going to leave more fractured than when they went into this. And it all has to do with something you've probably seen on the news, and you've been like, I don't really know what that is, but it doesn't sound good, and, and I probably am never going to understand this. It all has to do with three letters, CRT. Critical race theory. How many of you heard of it? How many of you heard of it but aren't sure what it is? Okay. Critical race theory. I'm just going to call it what it is. It's Marxist doctrine. It's Marxist doctrine. But it is being used by, by men that I have read before, men that I have respected before, men that I look up to that I don't quite look up to as much now. It has been used by these men to say certain things about the church, specifically in the United States. Number one, that the church systemically, and, and, and not just systemically, but the whole fabric and structure of the church, not just the society is, is that if you're white, you're a racist. This is being preached in our churches. I'm sure you've heard of this before, white privilege. Okay, this is, this is white privilege on steroids. That's what this is. If we're all honest with ourselves, we have thought we have been racially insensitive and we have been racist at times. I have been. And it's not just about blacks. 
In fact, I'm probably, I'm, I'll just, I'm probably more racist when it comes to Asians. Like, every time I go to a hotel, I'm like, yeah, I expect there to be an Indian who owns the hotel. Or something like that. Some of you are laughing. You think that way too, don't you? Okay. We all are sinful, so we all are going to be prone to think sinful thoughts. Critical race theory, then, is, is, the, is the framework whereby, where, where, and this is actually being discussed in churches, where we are going to literally financially pay for the sins of generations before us. It's called reparations. Okay? The Southern Baptists are going to talk about that this summer, of how to make reparations. What's missing in reparations? Well, here's the, and what, most, of, most of what I've read, and not all, but most of what I've read about reparations is, what's missing there is, this, is a biblical doctrine, and that is the doctrine of actually owning up to your sin and seeking forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness. They're trying to do restitution without forgiveness. Or without repentance. And so, we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of this. Your kids are probably getting a dose of this in school. Even in good local school districts that are rural. I mean, come on, after all, we're not in Columbus here. No, they're hearing it. They're hearing it. Okay? You need to be aware of it. You need to dig into it. Makes you want to just go live in a bunker, doesn't it? But you can't. You've got to be salt and light. You can't go live in a bunker. So, what is the answer to all of this? So glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to read up on this, I'm going to commend to you a book. I don't often do this, but I'm going to commend you a book. This is a good place to get started. It's not the summation of it all, and I, I would not even presume, he would not even presume to say that he, he answers it fairly from all sides, but it comes from a man who is an African-American who was raised in, in, in Los Angeles by a single mother who understood, who understood the injustices of it, um, a guy that maybe you have heard of. His name is Dr. Vody Bauckham. He, he has written a book called Fault Lines. And what he has done is he has exposed what's happening in the church. He, he was a former Southern Baptist, and he's writing this as, as a plea to, to men that he loves to, to look at this from a biblical perspective. And I appreciate the way he handled the subject. Do I think he's got it all right? I don't think anybody has it all right. But I think he's got a, he's got a good handle on it. The answer to this is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made with flesh by hands. Paul is even noting this. Paul's noting, and, 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 and let's understand, in the early church, in the first century church, he was dealing with racial disharmony. Okay? This, the, we're not the first generation that's dealt with this. Paul was dealing with it in his day. So he says, remember you were one time Gentiles in the flesh. Verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. What's the answer? It's the Sunday school answer. Go ahead and say it. Jesus. Which tells me this, and there's a couple things I want to bring out of this. One, if a local church keeps Jesus as its focus and Jesus as its model and Jesus as the one they pursue, they're going to be less and less in danger of, of succumbing to racial, racial problems. But it also tells me this. Our world is going to be full of racial tension and racial, racial disharmony until Jesus sits on the throne and reign, rules and reigns here on this earth. It's not going to go away. And so, because it's, and I'm not saying that to depress us, I'm saying for us to, to, to have a good dose of reality. If you've got young children, just wake up to the fact you're going to raise your children in a room, that, in a world that's full of racial disharmony, and you got to help them to understand what's going on here. Do you want the world to inform your children how they should view race? Do you want them to, do you want them to, I mean, June is Pride Month. Do you want the world to inform your children how they should view homosexualities and, and aberrant lifestyles? Then what do you have to do? You have to know the word and you have to be proactive. And I don't care what education system you choose to educate your child, you have to be involved. Because the world is involved and the world is indoctrinating. I can't tell you, last summer, in the middle of all the racial unrest, which, which I'm going to get in trouble here. Global pandemic, right? We're all kind of sequestered away from one another, and what happens on the world stage? And all this stuff, Right? Christian, be discerning here. Christian, be discerning. Do those things fit together? Do they? I'm not talking like tinfoil hats here. I'm talking about being biblically discerning. Does that stuff all fit together? It does. It does. All this stuff works together. And, and, and literally, we're in a situation now in our own country where because of, of what's happened in the past, you know, 16, 18 months, we are more ready than ever to just, just go to the, to the hands of the all-wise benevolent leaders who love us and want to care for us and take whatever they're going to give to us. That's where we're at. And we need to be discerning in this. And again, I'm not saying go sit in your basement with a tinfoil hat. I'm just saying read the word and understand what's going on and view what's happening around us. Anti-racism has become a cult. It's become its own religion. That's what it's become. And if you don't bow down to the God of anti-racism and, 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 and that cult, you will be crushed by it. 
And it finds its roots in the same place a lot of these other places are in science. In science. Any thoughts on that before we move on? That's a good point. I talked with a, with a man in our church in the last two weeks who told me he doesn't know how much longer he can hang on to his job because, because it's getting hard. he won't affirm some of the things that are being told they have to affirm. And unfortunately, Christians have played into this. We've played into this because we, there, are, there, are, there are fringes of Christianity that have been rabid lunatics on the edge that have appeared to be totally unchristlike, and those are the ones that get the attention. Any other thoughts? <laughs> now you're thinking, Jim. Stop thinking. But these are real issues where we live. And the, and the point I'm trying to make here is, it's easy on a Sunday morning for us to sit here and pretty much be like-minded about this. But we go out into a world, and, and we have to understand, it's one thing to say it here to live by the word. It's another thing Monday morning to live by the word. It's another thing to live by the word. And, and, and I think and it's becoming increasingly, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to this. It's coming, becoming hostile to people who, who will not 
you know, fall into lockstep with what they want to do. Um, our country is resembling much more Nazi Germany than I ever thought I would ever see in my lifetime. Yes. You are. And I'm older. Right. And, and, yeah, and, and one of the things that we have seen in the last decade, I think, maybe longer than that is, I think too often the American church has wrapped itself in the American flag and we have gotten that really, really, really mixed up. We're not Americans first. I know, some of you are like, well, Donald Trump says America first. No, we're, we're, we're citizens of kingdom of heaven first. And, and, and that has to be our mindset. And, and one of the things that I will say, and I view it as a blessing, and it's, it's been a painful blessing, is to see some of this stripped away from us to make us realize it's not America first, it's Christ first. And that's been healthy. It's been hard for a lot of Christians Yeah, we are. Should we be hands off? If we've been placed in a nation where we are given a, a right to participate in government, should we, as Christians, participate? Well, I, Absolutely. I guess I'm thinking 
No, I think, we, I, think, I think if we are, if God has, in his wisdom, made me a citizen of the United States, and, and because of that, I have inherent rights that are given to me, is it good stewardship to use those rights? Yes. None of that should be our concern. I think the greatest concern, I think the greatest concern for any child of God is, 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 and I'm not, I'm not dodging, is do I love God and do I love my neighbor as myself? Under the American system, I have a lot of freedom and rights to do that. When those rights are being taken away from me, can I speak to that? Yes. Can I address that? But, for instance, I have, a, I have a, an acquaintance. He's not a friend, but an acquaintance on Facebook that I've known for years. And, and honestly, I, I'm about ready to block him because all he does is badger pastors for not getting in their pulpits and speaking against the ills in our country. That's not what a pastor's called to do. That's not what we're called to do. Yes, when we live loving God and loving our neighbors, we are salt and light. But we sometimes misinterpret what salt and light is. Salt and light is not getting, getting abortion wiped out. Am I against abortion? Absolutely. But salt and light first comes from an ethic of I love God and I love my neighbor. And because I love my neighbor and I see the, the most vulnerable of my neighbors being murdered in the womb, I get involved there. But too often as Christians, we pick and choose where we see the vulnerable. Do we have vulnerable around us even here in Johnstown? We do. We do. And, and so that ethic has to be a part of, of everything that we do. And, and do, I, do I exercise stewardship personally and, and like do research on who I'm going to vote for for governor in the upcoming election? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. But do I, do I feel like it's the responsibility of a local church to tell you who to vote for? Absolutely not. I think it's important that I encourage you to do your own research and uphold those and vote for those who, and, and let's face it, it doesn't matter what office or whoever it is, or, I mean, you could have the most saintliest of Christians running for governor of this state, and he's not a perfect man or perfect woman, Right? And so, when it comes to, to, to viewing this, and we're, we're bleeding over into government and our time's running out, let's just look at 1 Peter chapter 2 for a couple minutes. Okay, and I chose the Peter passage because we could use Romans 13 here. But the Peter passage is specifically written to Jewish believers who are living in a Roman society, Right? 
And what does he say to them? Be subject, verse 13, to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And, and some have taken that to say, well, then we have to live in blind obedience to those who rule over us. That's not what this text says. You have to take the whole of this text. And one of the things that is in there that gets overlooked is, verse 15, the will of God is that how are we to live? How are we to live? By doing good. Do governments always do what's right and what's good? No. When the government is doing what's right and what's good, are we to live in harmony with that government? If, if this were truly followed around the world, Chinese Christians would never meet and assemble because their government tells them what? You can't do it. They're not doing good in that situation. You're, you're making a frown at me. Yeah. And we're going to have to just leave it till next week. But, but I, the study of man, anthropology, deals with all of this. Do you understand how this is so important? Because, because God, God, as the creator of man, the sociological implications are far-reaching more than what's what I even have right here. But I do want to talk next week about culture and the socionomical, because a lot of times we misunderstand what culture is and the point of it and, and, and that it's God's design. And now that phones are going off, I have to quit. <sighs> Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's so easy for us in the world that we live in to get so twisted and to think like the world thinks. And so I pray that, that earnestly we would seek you in your word. That before we, we, we buy into philosophies that are, that are being given to us, that we would first run them through the lens of Scripture. That we would, that we would look at them clearly through, through truth as you present it to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And in the days that we live in, it's getting increasingly harder and harder to live in harmony with your word. Give us strength to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.